Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. And today in the show, I'm joined by Jared Airdotty to discuss how he analyzes, breaks down, and solves the whitetail puzzle. All right, welcome to the Wire Dunt Podcast, brought to you by First Light. As I just mentioned, we've got Jared Airdowdy today on the show. Jared is most known from two different places, I would guess. You maybe have seen him on the Whitetail Addictions TV show. That's the Lone Wolf show with Andre DeQuisto and that whole group of incredible deer hunters. Jared is part of that crew, and he is equally incredible at targeting big mature whitetail deer with his bow. Uh, He also was one of the founders and creators of the Blood Brothers and then now known as Next to Buck DVD series. Uh, If you've seen Marsh Country Bucks or Hill Country Bucks or Farm Country Bucks, these DVDs involving Jared, his buddy Lee, and Dan Infault, uh, they have been kind of foundational pieces of education for a lot of us serious deer hunters uh, that came out in the early 2000s, I think-ish in that time frame. I picked them up, I think, in 2009, maybe 2010, and uh, you can just see from those DVDs the immense well of knowledge that Jared is pulling from. And in the years since, he's continued to have tremendous success targeting deer while also raising a family and balancing all that. Uh, He's got a really great analytical approach to deer hunting. Uh, he, he embraces this, uh, scouting and mobile centric approach that a lot of people are finding success with today, but he brings to it his own unique set of kind of mental thought processes. And so today on the show, what I want to do is walk through with him, what those thought processes are, how he goes about scouting and identifying buck bedding areas, how he goes through and thinks about setting up and hunting these areas how he considers finding the spot within the spot. How do you put all these pieces together, right? We're solving this puzzle. Every season, even every day we go out to hunt, it's a new puzzle. And what Jared shares with us today is how he personally thinks about that puzzle and how he figures out how all of these different layers of information go together. It's a fascinating conversation. I really enjoyed it. Jared has a lot to share, and I know you're going to enjoy this one. 
So without further ado, I'm going to let you get right into this episode. The only thing I will mention, just as a heads up, on the First Light front, right? First Light's part of our Mediator team. They have launched and now have available their full Whitetail Catalyst system and the new Solitude Jacket, all in available in the new Spectre Whitetail Camouflage pattern. So if you want to fill out the rest of your setup for the upcoming hunting season and utilizing that new camo pattern, which which I've been loving, used last year, works like a charm, uh, you can check it out at firstlight.com. The only other news I'll mention is make sure you are checking out all the new content we have from Wired to Hunt. As we mentioned last week, it's not just a podcast anymore. We've got a website. We've got new video series. We have the new Foundations podcast from Tony. You can find it all at themeateater.com slash wired. We've got everything there for you to find. If you want to take your whitetail know-how to the next level, this is how to do it. So check it out and... Without further ado, I know I said that once before, now I'm going to say it for the last time. Let's get into my conversation with Jared. Enjoy. All right, with me now on the line is Jared Erdody. Jared, thank you for being here on the show. Yeah, very welcome, Mark. I'm excited for this conversation. You are, you're someone who I've, I've kind of followed from afar and, and, kind of just sucked in all the information from I could for a long time, as many people I'm sure did with your really influential DVD series that came out many years ago. Um, and it's, it's just great to get to finally get to pick your brain in person and dive into things that I've kind of been curious about for years and have went out in the field and tested and tried and thought about. And then oftentimes wonder, man, I'd like to ask, you know, I'd like to ask Jared about this. Or I wonder what Lee would think about that. Uh, so, so this is great. I'm looking forward to it and, uh, there's lots to cover. So if you're, uh, if you're up for it, if you had enough coffee this morning, I'm thinking we should just get right into the meat and potatoes of things. Yeah. Yeah. I'm good with that, Mark. I appreciate you having me. Yeah. Well, what I was hoping to do was, was dissect your approach to deer hunting. And it seems like you had a somewhat similar beginning to your deer hunting journey to me. Um, given that you were hunting up in Northern Michigan and your family was kind of the, put the bait out there and sit over it and wait on things. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, am, I, am I right on that? Yeah. Spot on as, yeah. as most of us Michiganders. Exactly. So I lived the same life and, uh, it never worked very well for us. And it, from what I get, from what I hear, it seems like you did that for a long time and then you had an aha moment. You had some kind of shift in your perspective and then things started changing for you. Can you describe what that aha moment or series of moments was that took you from, you know, hunting the way you always used to and having the same old, same old results to all of a sudden changing and seeing a different set of results? What was that for you? Yeah. Um, I would say if, if there was a, I wouldn't say it was one particular hunt, but it was probably a particular season and, uh, or seasons, you know, kind of when I was, I would say 13, 14 years old, we moved to the upper peninsula when I was 13 Well, when I was 12, actually. Um, but the fall, by the time I was fall of, uh, 88, I was 13 that fall. And so that was my first experience, my second year bow hunting. Um, and we, we met some neighbors up in the, in the UP there that, 
you know, it's just kind of took us under their wing and, and said, hey, you know, this is how we do it. You know, so we were trucking bait in to our spots, you know, almost on a daily basis before season. And then uh, you start hunting these spots come season. And in hindsight, you know, you look back and you're like the first one or two sits was really it. And then it was done. You know, they were on to you, on to us. We weren't looking at wind, wind direction or weather, you know, really at all. It was just go hunt your bait, you know, here's your tree stand or, or your ground blind and just hunt it. So in that season, I, I don't think I had any opportunities that first year, but the second year I wounded, um, I wounded three different bucks when I was 14. That was part of an aha moment as far as equipment and preparation. We all mm-hmm. go through that stuff. You know, I think that's part of the, the learning phase of things. And then uh, when I was 15, I ended up killing four bucks. I shot my first buck ever out in Colorado. I went on a mule deer hunt with my dad. But then I got back to Michigan, and um, I killed my first buck with a bow, and then I killed two bucks with a gun back when you could kill four in Michigan. Um, but as, as those, those couple seasons were really where things transitioned from hunting over bait all the time and gradually seeing less and less and less, to then um, kind of realizing that, okay, my first few chances are it, you know, and then I blew them and then starting to actually have some success and, and score. But then those spots didn't keep working out, you know, things changed. And so um, part of, part of what I was realizing is, and I think it was uh, that my dad had a cedar stand um, or he had a tree stand and a clump of cedars and, and he baited it all the time. And first, again, first few sets, you know, one of us would have some action. I think my brother, um, I think he wounded a spike horn out of that stand um, that season. I might have my timing off. But I sat it a week or so later, and I just wasn't seeing deer. But I was seeing them coming out of this other side of this field. Um, you know, there's, it wasn't ag or anything. It was just an opening in the, in the swamp, basically but I was watching them come out of this other side. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm sick of not seeing deer. I just started, I went for a walk and I got over there and I found two or three fresh rubs and a, and a, and a runway. And I was like, well, I might as well try it, you know? So, and I, and I actually found an old, it was an old ladder stand that gosh, it probably hadn't been used in 20 years. So I kind of secured them some things up and, and I sat that in the first evening I sat that, I had a small nine pointer, which it was a three-year-old buck and, and the UP is, you know, about as old as they get sometimes yeah. you would think. Um, but I had a three-year-old buck. It was October 23rd, I believe, um, walking, just kind of shadowing a doe that evening. She walked right past me and then he walked by me at 15 yards and that was my first buck and it wasn't over bait. It was uh, just a natural movement thing in, in the swamps up there and, and I was hooked. I was like, get me away from these bait piles. <laughs> and so that, that was kind of what it became is um, just that realization of number one, getting off of bait and, but more, more so than the bait, because I do believe baiting can be very effective and I've done it since then. Um, but it's that realization of educating the deer and they being onto your presence and, uh, and just avoiding you. And, and it's not that they leave the country or the county, um, not that they even go nocturnal in, in, in many cases. It's that they just know that, 
hey, there's hunters there, and I'm I'm not going to go there. So, so the the next couple of years in in high school, I I usually killed um, three year old bucks or better just by doing that, and uh, that was really cool. I mean that independence number one of breaking away and just not hunting dad stands anymore, but picking my own spots, um, usually away from bait and then, uh, and, and having more success. So once I, I got to Southern Michigan, um, I was playing college baseball, so we didn't have much time to, to hunt, but usually by the end of October, we were done. We had one of our, our friends, uh, or friends of the team, I should say, one of the boosters that had some land and he let me and a, another teammate hunt there. I got down there and I thought I was in heaven. I mean, I was seeing like one or two year old bucks every set and I had never hunted out of a portable tree stand and I didn't have one yet. I didn't own one. So we're sitting on the ground every night and we were, you know, they were approaching us from the wrong side or we didn't have shooting lanes cut. It was just like willy nilly, you know, it was uh, certainly mobile hunting, but not with the, the kind of equipment that would have made me much more effective back then. But um, really cool, um, really cool history to, to look back on those memories of, of stumbling my way through, um, figuring things out. And yeah. then one, I remember the first lock on stand, I got a lock on limb tree stand, um, from DNR sports center in Kalamazoo. Yeah. And that was, you know, that was it. I was, I was like, Oh my gosh, I, I've got it made now. I can get up in a tree and, you know, use these screw in steps and stuff. And, um, so I, I started having some more success and then, uh, I met a guy when I was going to grad school at U of M. Um, I met a, a guy that also kind of took me under his wing. I was door knocking all day on a Saturday, Sunday in the Ann Arbor area. And, uh, I met a good friend to this day that, um, let me hunt with him. And he was the first one that put me onto lone wolf stands, um, and so I remember sitting in this stand one morning, he had, he had a stand and, uh, he's like, well, just, you know, just use this one. And, and I was sitting in it that morning, it was frosty and cold. And, and I'm sitting there, I'm like, this stand isn't squeaking. I'm like, what, what's going on? I started trying to make it squeak. <laughs> like, I'll be darned. I mean, I got to talk to him about this. And, and that was, uh, I think it was like 97 um, 97 or 98. Um, and he, and he told me about them and, and how much they cost, you know, cause they were always been a lot more than the rest of them out there. But I'm like, Oh my gosh, I'm in college. I can't get those yet. Um, but then, uh, fast forward a couple of years, once I finished graduate school, um, my stepbrother had started a knife company and, um, I was helping him out with trade shows. He runs, uh, he owns Rapid River Knife Works up in Rapid River, Michigan. And when when I was at those shows, that was when I first met Andre and 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 Dan Infault. And with my background in art and uh, design and photography and video, um, and and my previous few years of hunting out of lone wolves and getting more mobile and having more success. And always being a fan of videos and watching, you know, probably yourself, you know, Dan Fitzgerald and, and all the video guys that, you know, the Real True Monster Box series and mm-hmm. watching every hunting video I could. Like, no, nobody's talking about how to how to kill these bucks, you know, uh, in a pressured situation or um, on a, you know, 
non-outfitted bases. Um, they're just they're just all about um, plugging plugging their products or or the outfitter that they're with. And um, at those shows was when I started talking to those guys about you know what if what if we made a video that taught people how to do it. And um, that that was kind of the birth of things. So. Yeah, and and that that's a great segue because those videos. As I think I mentioned at the top, really were foundational for a lot of people. I mean, a lot of people that are today super successful in the whitetail woods uh, can point back to those as as being a great, great start for them. I mean, it helped me a ton and a bunch of my hunting buddies. I know probably 12, 13 years ago maybe is when I picked them up. And all my friends were, oh, yeah, you got to watch this. You got to watch this. And I did. And it helped just click, help click things together. Um, and if anyone hasn't watched those videos, they should. Uh, but what I'm really curious about, I want to go through a bunch of, of the things that you did discuss in there, but at a high level, I'm wondering, you know, did your, has your general approach, well, maybe, maybe let me take one step back. You kind of talked us through where you came from as far as how you started hunting and how that evolved. And you, 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 you kind of fell into the idea that being mobile helps, et cetera, et cetera. But now, can you tell me, if you were in a elevator and you had 30 seconds before you got to the fifth floor that you're going to get off, and there's one other person in that elevator with you, and you need to explain, like, this is, this is my hunting philosophy. This is the key to my hunting success in 30 seconds that, that generalizes your approach to targeting mature whitetail bucks. How would, you, how would you sum that up quickly as, like, the Jared Ordotti approach today? Yeah, it's, it's probably going to sound like others you've talked to. Um, but if I had 30 seconds, I would tell them, figure out where a buck bets, where the buck you want to kill is betting and don't let him know you're hunting him. And, and that's, that's really what it comes down to. When I started learning where deer were living and, um, learning how to figure out if you had one around, you know, obviously trail cameras have helped that immensely, but if you have one around that's worth hunting, figuring out where he's living, where he's spending his time, um, then and and then the general observation that don't let them know you're hunting them, that that kind of sums it up for me. You you it, it comes to like Andre coined the phrase "virgin sits." You know, you just you got to have that element of surprise. Um, but that, that's really what it's about to me, too. You just can't overhunt stuff to the point where they're educated. Um, there, are, there are several times now where guys think I don't ever hunt the same spot twice in a season, and that's not true. Um, I may hunt them a, a few times, especially during the rut, you know, when things are different. But in general, it's not to the point where they're educated. You know, we can keep things fresh by moving around. Yeah. Well, let's let's start the first part of that then. The whole aspect of betting, knowing where they live, um, it, it's pretty intuitive in a lot of ways. But if you had to describe for yourself, why do you view understanding betting as the number one first you know first priority when you're trying to figure out a new place or trying to put together a hunting strategy? In your thoughts, why is that so important? Why is that the crux to everything else? Well, the the main reason is because that's what deer do 90% of their day. 
is they bed. They're they're in their bed. A mature buck. I'm not going to talk about does or young bucks, but um, that mature buck is most most of the time going to be bedded. Um, and so when you look at the the big picture of whether it's a morning hunt or an evening hunt, you have to be X amount of yards from that deer's bed in order to have any chance of seeing him in daylight that day. And in some states, that might be a few hundred yards or more. Um, in other states and areas, it may be 50 or 100 yards. Um, so that's that's really why it's so important because that's where they spend the daylight hours, and that's all we have to hunt them. Um, and and then you you know so from there you figure out where's the chink in his armor that's going to allow me to see him when he's on his feet. Yeah. Let's let's talk about then how you identify those spots. Um, you guys did a great job covering this in the in the DVDs in the past. I'm curious. I'm I, I want to walk through each of the different major terrain types and how you look about or how you think about identifying those bedding areas. But in particular, I'm really interested in also if your views have evolved at all on any of these things since those original videos. So, for example, when it comes to like swamps and marshes and you're thinking about bedding, um, can you walk me through, you know, where somebody should start looking for that? What kinds of features will help them key in on what where those buck bedding areas might be? And then is there anything different now than, you know, 15 or however many years ago it was when you guys put this information out to the public on those videos? Yeah, the, the cool thing about it, and the, this was a big reason I, I saw a, a value in making those videos is because I think it's timeless information. I mean, unless the terrain changes and the, the topography changes, I, I really don't see a, a big difference or a shift in, in how they bed now versus 20 years ago if things are the same. Obviously, foliage and you know, um, trees and brush will grow and, and change, and the, the canopy and those kind of things can change. Pressure can change what they're doing. But all else being equal, I don't see a big difference in, in what they're doing, especially with hill country and thermals. Um, they, they still will bed to, to those advantages, you know, where they want to look, you know, look to where they can't see and, and smell what's behind them and, and smell thermals coming up in, in the general sense, bed on, bedding on lee sides of hills. I mean, to this day, I still use that for success, hunting elk out west, hunting mule deer out west. Um, last year, I killed an elk and a mule deer, and it was largely because of those those concepts and those videos. Um, when I When I look at a new spot or uh, a historical spot that I may have known for a long time. Um, those are still the, the concepts that will ring true. So if you learn those and, and, uh, you know, really keep those in mind with any spot you're hunting, they're going to stay pretty true to form. Yeah. So, so let's dig a little more detail then into that, that hill country example you described. You mentioned a bunch of things there, kind of rapid fire, least side of the hill, you know, catching wind over their back but can you can you maybe paint the picture in a little bit more detail of exactly the type of spots you're going to key in on and and why you think those bucks prefer those places yeah i mean it's it's all about a, a deer having an advantage um the best advantage he can to survive you know and it's not just humans but it's against predators and, and andre and i talked about this many many years ago but um humans are a small percentage of the the threats that a, a buck or any deer has out in the wild 
Um, so when you, I guess, uh, trying to think of a better analogy offhand, but um, it, it's it's like anything, you know, the the dominant animal is going to get the best spot, right? And the best spots seem to be, you know, where those mature bucks are bedding. It, it typically is in, in those types of scenarios. So if it's hill country, um, they want to have the, the wind to their advantage, a, a, visual, a visual to their advantage. And so what, what we're seeing, and, and this is what, this was in the early 2000s when, when I first started hunting the steeper stuff out west, you know, along the Mississippi and stuff. I'd sit there in the bottom of the valley. I'd get winded, um, I don't know, how many times it took me, but I, I, I'm watching these deer just regularly about a third of the way down from the top of the hill. And so over those years, as, as I started scouting more and walking those hills and, and just seeing, really observing what's going on, um, you've got a collision of air currents um, just over the edge. It's not necessarily a third. It's not always right over the top or or halfway up or anything, but there's a collision of air currents when you have a prevailing wind coming over a ridge and you have thermals from the bottom coming up. And again, this is during the daytime, not, you know, usually it's depending on the temperature shift that day, it's an hour or two after daylight. Um, But as those thermals come up and a prevailing wind comes over, there's, we kind of, we coined it this thermal tunnel or a mixing zone where those air currents collide. And that's really where those deer like to bed because they've got the best of both worlds. They've got wind in their face coming up and a prevailing wind coming over the top. So they feel pretty invincible there. And, and it's, it rings true to this day. I mean, if I go anywhere, almost anywhere, but in, in hill country where you've got systems of ridges and, and fingers and, um, points going off of ridges and you walk those ridges, that's typically where you're going to find your beds. And the best buck bedding um, is typically on points um, given prevailing winds, you know, so it's going to shift based on where a prevailing wind is, but they're going to typically be on those, on those points um, where they have that advantage to themselves. So, and it may or may not be, with a tree to their back or a blow down to their back or something. Typically though, they like to butt up to some cover behind them um, where they can see in front of them and not be approached from behind. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what we're observing. Yeah. So what about a scenario like this? I've encountered this myself where I've gone and, and been scouting that kind of area, looking for these places where you'd think bucks of bed. And there's sometimes these ridge systems where there's points coming off, you know, frequently, many of these points that, that seem pretty similar, all poking off the main ridge out into the larger drainage, and every one of those points will have a handful of beds on it. A couple here, mm-hmm. next one will have a couple, two, three here, next one will have the same kind of thing. And when you go down a ridge and there's nine points like that over the course of, I don't know, a half mile or something, and they all have beds on them, and they all have some rubs coming up off the top, how do you, like, what are the things you think about when trying to prioritize or trying to figure out, okay, this is where the mature buck's actually spending most of the time, or these few are where the mature buck is spending the most time? Um, have you ever encountered a situation like that where there seems like there's so many potential great spots for a, for a group of bucks or a buck to bed? Yeah, um, 
I, I guess I'm maybe not exactly like that, but I know what you mean. I mean, where sometimes the sign can just look so similar that it's hard to point out um, any one particular spot to start, right? Yeah. And and that's that's quite often the case. I mean, it's it's rare um, that you go out and you find just the perfect scenario of oh my gosh, this point and this point only has giant rubs and big beds and nothing else does. Yeah. Um, that's kind of rare, right? I've done like when I hunted the big woods in Ohio. Um, this is probably about six, eight years ago when I, well, probably longer than eight or ten years ago when I first started hunting down there. Um, and I, I kind of saw that scenario and I spent basically two full days walking, nothing but big woods and ridges and stuff. And in those two full days, I found about three points that just kind of stuck out more than others where those ones did have the big rubs and the rest were pretty similar, you know? And so part of it for me is, um, you know, there's always that balance. Okay. How much time do you have? You know, I don't have a full week to scout this or to hunt it. Maybe, um, you, you go down with a, a certain plan that I've got three days, I'm going to scout for two days and, or one day, or I'm going to scout all day and I'm going to hunt the evening. It, it all depends on your individual plan. Right. And so if you walk all day and you, you see nothing but similar sign, then you're going to end up taking a flyer, right? Taking your best guess. Um, you may put out cameras and, and try to hone in on, on what the difference is. Um, typically, too, if, you're, if it's a time of year, like, I guess, if it's early season, you're probably not just blowing through and scouting ridges like, that are super thick and really hard to walk through. Um, it's probably opening up and it's late October. So I'm, I'm more so keying in on some primary scrapes along those ridges because, um, especially Ohio or Wisconsin, they're a little more apt than Michigan to be on their feet, you know, but, um, primary scrapes on ridges tend to be something that will pop up. If you walk enough, you're going to find areas that, okay, this is where the bucks in the area are are moving towards, even though the points may look similar, um, then, then that, that tends to be your focus. But, um, yeah, I mean, if, if you've got pretty generic sign, then, uh, you got to start somewhere. Right. And then you start, that's where bopping around tends to help, but you're also trying to factor in lots of things, you know, whether you're shining the area and what you're seeing, or you're running trail cameras, or you're talking to somebody, or you've got pictures or visuals, um, something is going to indicate, okay, I've seen a big one in this area or somebody else has, and then you start scouting and, and trying to hone in on it, you know, and putting those puzzle pieces together. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and knowing that, okay, if a buck was seen in daylight, he was, you know, and, and unless it's peak rut or something where he may have traveled a, a long ways, if he was seen in daylight somewhere, he's probably not moved real far from his bed. So now you've got something you can hone in on, um, like just that natural assumption that if a buck's on his feet in the evening, whether it's a field edge or anywhere, um, yeah, he, he probably hasn't moved real far from where he's bedded. So now you've got somewhere to start. Yeah. yeah I, I want to dive just a little more into something you just mentioned, that being, you know, you just described this example as being it would work if it was outside of the rut. But what about inside the rut? 
how do your views on these buck beds and bedding areas does that just go all out out the window during the rut and you're just going to focus on you know travel corridors and does or do you still in the back of your mind keeping keep where those buck beds were that you discovered earlier in the year how does all this factor in in november yeah in the peak of the rut i'm more so focused on the doe doe bedding areas and the travel corridors between those buck areas and the, the buck bedding points and the doe bedding areas. So if it's too late now for scrapes and, and that primary scrape hunting, um, then I'm more keyed in on those travel zones around doe bedding areas because that's that, that to me is the ticket. Yeah. Um, and it can also be food, you know, depending if you're hunting private and you've got food plots and, and does are coming in, then, then yeah, that, that becomes an easier scenario. But, um, if you're hunting big woods, um, I'm keying in on doe bedding areas and I've, I've watched it, you know, where, especially in Iowa, um, I've seen bucks just scent check doe bedding areas one after another, after another. And, and even if they're younger bucks, you just see that, okay, that's the pattern. That's what they're doing. Um, so yeah, that, that's, that's the tactic I shift towards is, is hunting the doe bedding areas. Yeah. Makes sense. Now you mentioned the fact that if it's too late for primary scrapes, uh, what's the time frame that you think's right for hunting those primary scrapes? And for people that don't know, and, and honestly, I guess everyone kind of has a slightly different definition of what they're talking about when they mention primary scrapes. Can you define for you what that looks like? And then what's the sweet spot when you're keying in on those kinds of spots? Yeah, so the primary scrapes are not those big scrapes you typically see on a field edge or, you know, when you see a field edge littered with 10 of them and there's one big one there, those aren't typically the primary scrapes. The The primary scrapes are, are more so in thicker cover. Um, they're closer to where that buck is bedding or where those does are, are bedding, and they're more frequently checked. Um, and they're they're very killable over those scrapes in late October. Um, the, the best generality I can give you is late October. It can be very early November. It can be third week of October, um, depending on what area of the Midwest that we're in. I'm not going to get into Canada. I've never whitetail hunted in Canada. But, um, yeah, around here, I mean, what, what's really keyed, I've keyed in on is from basically October 20th through um, November 2nd, November 3rd, um, to, to give you an example of what I've learned in the last few years, I've hunted, um, a particular farm. And one of the things I've, I've taken pride in over the last 20 plus years and the deer I've killed is I, I can't think of any of them that have come out of the same tree. And most of them have been on different farms because I don't own farms or don't own land. Um, besides my small acreage I've got behind my house, I don't own land to be able to, you know, have something locked up forever. And I've had success on a lot of different farms in a lot of different places in different trees. Um, because I know the the elements that I'm looking for to, to have success. It's not, it's not about just finding one spot and then scoring every year in that spot. Um, but a, a spot that Lee and I hunt together, um, man, it's what's, really cool is when you do get a couple three seasons to hunt the same spot um my trail cameras have shown me daylight activity of bucks on scrapes from 
probably October 23rd ish until November 2nd. And then it just almost shuts right off. And you know, the, the does have come in to heat, the bucks are locked on does and they're not on the scrapes. And that's just the way it is there. It's uh it's really almost cut and dry. We've had really good action in that late October area up until about November 2nd, and then it just shuts right off and then it'll kick back in around November 12th. And that's, uh, that's, that's pretty consistent to a lot of things that, that I've seen too. It's, and the research bears out too. I think that they've shown peak, peak scraping activity is right, right in that same pocket, that same window. So makes, yeah, makes all the sense in the world. Um, you know, something that just a random analogy that popped in my mind as we were talking a second ago, uh, when you mentioned how you have to take this scouting information and then layer it with something like a trail camera picture over a scrape or a sighting or, uh, you know, whatever other information you have, you can't just rely on that scouted point and, you know, knowing that it's kind of like layering pieces of Swiss cheese. Like you've got that first layer of Swiss cheese that tells you, okay, I scouted this area and I saw six different points that all could have a buck betting on them. That's one layer, but there's still holes in it, right? And then you need to take another slice of Swiss cheese and maybe that's your trail camera information or maybe that's glassing from a field edge and seeing where these deer are popping out. And that's going to give you another level of information. You layer that on top and that covers some of the holes, but maybe you still have a couple more. So then you've got a Take another slice, and maybe this is uh, you know historical information. You've hunted it two years prior, so you've been able to observe some things over the years. You take that, and if you stack enough layers like that, all of a sudden you cover all the holes, and you've got stuff figured out. But you can't depend on any one single piece of information, or you or you narrow it down to the one hole that's still showing, and you know that's that's it. True. And then I yeah, I, I think of it as putting a puzzle puzzle together and you're getting more and more pieces and and but the swiss cheese is a good one too i mean that's a good a, a good picture people can think in their head of the the data that you're gathering and how you're honing in on what's ultimately going to give you success because yeah we, we only have to do it once you know you only have to be right once true true <laughs> sometimes easier said than done but uh but you're right uh, yeah if you get those pieces together it uh it's a pretty nice thing. Now, what about what about this set of scenarios we're talking about? Trying to understand bedding, trying to understand how these bucks are gonna, you know, relate to terrain. But let's shift the area from a hill country scenario to a marshy, swampy kind of situation. Um, can you can you walk me through the habitat types and features and behaviors you're seeing in that kind of scenario? Yeah. So the the best analogy I can give you relates more to rivers and in a swamp scenario around along rivers that that I'm more familiar with because um, you know when I've I, I don't hunt as many swamps anymore in Wisconsin um, but around me um, the the typical scenarios are are relating to rivers and river activity and right. and it's swampy cattails marsh and stuff on on public areas um, what what you generally see, and I, I outline this in, in my farm country video as well, is they bed re- relating to the rivers um, and the air currents that flow along those river systems. Um, so you have a prevailing wind, of course, but you also have your, um, your 
onshore, offshore breezes. I'll describe them as where the cooling of the air or just that settling of the of the air currents um, changes, you know, with air temperature and, and just in relation to the, also in relation to the topography. But what what we typically see are, are them bedding on oxbows um, or some sort of hump or point that, that goes out along the river. And, and that's, that's what I like to target. So, you know, we've, I've seen this in Iowa, but it, it's the same in Michigan too. If you scout river systems, um, you typically, your thickest cover is, is right up along those rivers and you've get, you get cut banks too, where they're, those deer are less approachable from the river. So they'll bed on those humps or, or those oxbows and they're not as approachable there. You know, you've got to go through a bunch of cover to get back into the oxbow. Or if you're on the river, um, they, you know, you may have a high bank that they'd have to approach or they can, they can see you. So they'll bed with that prevailing wind, um, coming from the field or something. And then, uh, you know, they're facing the river. They can just watch anything coming in, in the river or, you know, by way of the river and escape back out through the cover. Or if somebody comes crashing through there, they can just drop down the river, drop across the river, and, and they're safe. So those those are the scenarios that um, I see the most in, in what relates to me around here. Um, you don't have the quite the thermal activity and, and that kind of stuff because it's flatter ground. Um, but you do have that, those breezes that go up and down the river and that you can play to your advantage, you know? So, so that's, that's the, um, you know, that's the scenario most relevant to what I'm, I'm familiar with what I'm experienced with. Yeah. That's interesting. Do you find that they will flip flop which side of the river they're betting on based on if it's, you know, let's say you've got a, a North South river and you're going to have a westerly wind more often, but then every once in a while you get that east, would you see them flip-flopping just like a buck might flip-flop either side of a ridge based on what direction the wind's coming? Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to, I mean, the theory of that, absolutely. Um, whether I've seen that directly, I'm, I'm trying to think, because in most cases you don't have the exact same terrain on both sides of the right. river. There's reasons that... You know, if you've got a high cut bank on one side, it's not high cut on the other side because that's not where the current is flowing. That's not how it's bending. Will they bed further down on the other side? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I don't see why they wouldn't. Um, it 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 also depends on. Um, it, it just all depends on that particular farm or that land, um, how it lays out. You know, so if if your spot is is good for an, a west wind. And then you got an east wind that day. It might be as simple as them betting on the other side of the river, or they may be on the other side of the field, on the other side of the road, in a different part of that property or on a different property. So yeah, it's it's completely dependent on on the elements of of that particular land. But the theory and the in the principle, absolutely, I've seen I've seen both scenarios where yeah, they just flip they flip to the other side of the ridge or to the other side of the river, or they may be on a different property on the other side of the road. Yeah. You mentioned, you know, how this kind of scenario river winding through might, might be applicable to some farmland type stuff. And I've always thought that you know, the hill country bedding is something that, that seems pretty easy to identify in a map. And then you go there on foot and like, Oh yeah, there's a bed right where they're supposed to be. 
and you can look yeah. at a map of a swamp or something and and look for high ground islands in the middle of it or a point extending out of it and think to yourself, ah, there should be a bed there. And you go and you take a look at, yep, there's a bed. But general kind of generic farm country where I hunt a lot of the time in southern Michigan where there's no topography, there's no hills, where sometimes there's no wetlands or swamp. It's just mixed ag and timber and a little brush here and there. And it's that sometimes is the hardest stuff, at least for me, to figure out like, Where's the very best? No, right. How do you yeah, think about yeah. that? I mean, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's part of the reason I made that farm country video because you think about, okay, well, there's swamps and then there's hill country and then farm country is kind of like, well, what do you mean by that? And, and it's exactly what you just described because you see elements of everything in there and you've got, in most cases, a lot more of a people element to it. So, um, and, and that's why I described, um, that's kind of why I did them in that order as well, because you've got flatter ground, let's just say flatter ground bedding habits or, or swamp, swampland versus uh, hill country. But then farm farmland kind of incorporates a lot of things. And so you kind of need to be experienced in all those elements in order to recognize what's going on in farmland. So, um, it really just takes paying attention. You know, the deer will tell you where they're bedding if you just pay attention to where you're seeing them and where the sign is at and where your friends are seeing them or where the landowner's seeing them and and not being closed-minded, you know. So I, 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 make an, I made an ex, uh, specific point in that farm country video to talk about uh, bedding near the barns um, and near the people because in so many cases... And so many stories I've heard of, of bucks that lay down right behind the barn or right by, you know, the, the farm equipment or whatever, they, they will bed wherever they need to, to stay safe. And in, in a lot of cases, it's, um, it's where they can keep an eye on the people. So the mistake I see a lot of, of hunters make is that assumption that they're just in the thickest cover furthest away from people. And, and I usually see it's the opposite. I mean, it's, it's usually where they can keep tabs on people. So they're, uh, especially in urban settings, um, but even in the more remote farmland, they still tend to like to bed near the people so that they can keep an eye on them. And then when, you know, they get a little too close, then no, then they go bounding back into the cover where they're safer. Um, but as far as, um, the terrain and specific elements to look for. Yeah. I I can't tell you any one particular one because you'll see elements of all of that. You you may have a a swampy element or a hill country element. Um, Generally, you know, they're still going to keep that wind in mind, you know, like my house, for example, I look out at my field right now and to the left or the right, I've got um, a small hill on, on both sides and those deer will bed, you know, whether it's a northwest or a southwest wind, they'll be bedded on, on that particular spot in a given day because that's where the scent from my house goes so they can keep tabs on me. And it's, yeah, it's, of course, it's Michigan. There's does and small bucks. Um, but they, they have that same survival instinct that they, they want to know where their, their threat is at. And, and I've, I've thought of it before, whether you're playing paintball or um, 
if you were in an actual like a movie where people are hunting people, the last thing I would want to do is go bury myself in some thick cover where I can get snuck up on and not know where people are coming from or anything. I would, I would more so want to stay, uh, in sight of, of my threat, you know, keep tabs on where they're at so I can keep moving around them. Yeah. That's that's the way I try to approach it. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. Are there any personal examples where you found something like that and figured out how to kill that buck that was set up to to know what you were doing like he he thought he was ahead of the game and was setting up a spot where he could keep tabs on people but you figured that out um do you have any example kind of like that that you could kind of illustrate for us or or know of someone who did that i just imagine a lot of people a lot of people are in situations like that probably and don't realize it or don't know how to deal with that and it's something that probably would be helpful to address yeah i gotta think here um Or even just unique examples of just specific places you found bedding in this more generic farm country. Just describing specific examples of what those spots look like. Just it's just so easy to to identify like, hey, hill country bed should be in here, and you can see it. But like you mentioned, it's much harder to paint that picture for 
generic farmland. Yeah. Well, there's one, um, the one that first comes to mind is a property I didn't ever even get to hunt, but I scouted it with a friend of mine that I used to hunt with in Iowa. And he told me about, you know, his farm over in Illinois and they had this 200 inch buck and they couldn't figure him out. Um, they didn't, you know, know what he was doing or, or, uh, what was going on. And it has been a while, but I, I chuckled because he told me just a couple of things where they had seen it. And we walked over there and, and within, within 10 minutes, it might've even been five minutes. I said, well, here's where he's living. This is right where he's betting, man. Cause we walked in off of this. It was pretty exposed. Um, it was 50 yards within some cover. Um, and we were maybe a hundred yards off the road. And, and it was the last spot. He, he like looked down. He's like, are you kidding me? I'm like, yeah, I mean, look at this. They were thigh size rubs and giant beds in this little spot of cover that, I mean, if you, if you got in there and just sat in those beds and looked around, you're like, well, absolutely. He's living, this is exactly where he's living. And then if you back up from there and think, well, how would you kill him? I told him, it's like, this would be really challenging. And this is why he's living here and surviving here because he can see anything from this road. And I mean, as soon as you pull in and park, you know, he knows right where you're at, you know? And so that was, that was, um, mostly farmland. It was pretty flat, but it had hill country element to it because it, it had some rolling topography to it where I'm like, well, if you want to get this buck on trail camera and know whether he's in here or not, you know, this is how you do it. You know? So you had, really just a couple main trails coming in and out of the beds because it was so thick. So I'd, I would have backed off a little bit more by this particular creek bottom. Um, I would, I would have loved the chance to have hunted that spot because, uh, because of what I saw there, it would have been very challenging. It's, and it's something that, you know, it doesn't, you know, you look at that and you think you found it and okay, but that's just one piece of that puzzle right now. You've got to figure out when, when you can get him in daylight coming back in there or coming out of there with, you know, and get in and out, not being seen and stuff. So, um, that, that, this, that's the first one that comes to mind that I didn't, didn't get to hunt it, but, um, it was, it was completely overlooked by the guy. Um, he had hunted that property for, for years and never thought to just hundred yards from the road. This is where the biggest one they'd ever seen was living. <laughs> So he was walking right past that area every time, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that deer probably saw him every time he was in and out, and and they would see him on occasion. You know, he was because when he told me, he said, "Well, this is the side. You know, we've seen him over here, and I don't know where he's coming from." And so, well, again, back to like they're bedded most of the day, and outside a peak of the rut, he's probably not moving far from where he's, he's bedded. So. Yeah, we, I went in there and looked around, and within five minutes, I mean, it was just super obvious that that buck was living there. Why don't we explore what you would do next in that scenario? So, so envision you've got a property, maybe you haven't hunted before, new property, and or even this property, and let's say for some reason, instead of what ended up happening, your buddy said, hey, you know what, you found where he's living, get after him, you can hunt him, <laughs> and um, wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, yeah. Would, would. Um, what I'm curious about is what do you do next? Like you found the bedroom. 
I'd like to hear like your your thought process on what you're going to do next. Are you going to like how are you going to think about where you would set up? When would you come in and bring a stand? Would it be the day you hunt or would it be, you know, a month beforehand? Uh, and and then I want to keep on going all the way through. Let's talk through that. Let's talk through the day you're putting the stand up and and we'll kind of flesh out an example uh, from this starting point. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um <clears throat> I I almost say trail cameras don't make it fair anymore, um, especially with cell cameras. But, you know, we all have different scenarios, whether this was, let's say it's Illinois or Iowa or whatever, and I don't live there. It's a different scenario of how I'd approach it versus if I lived there. So if I lived there, I would would just be, I'd start observing. I would literally, whether it's from from my truck with a spotting scope half mile down the road, or if I had to climb a tree across the field, I would figure out a way to start observing that spot without intruding on it. So that would be step one. If I'm living there locally, if I'm, if I'm not, I'm starting to pepper perimeters with trail cameras and, and, and I'm probably doing that anyways, if I, if I do live there. Um, but it, it's all about, again, not educating them, not letting them know you're hunting them. So you're sitting back and observing and, and seeing if you can get eyes on them and, and crops will play a big factor, obviously, you know, so if that field is uh, beans that year or whether it's corn that year, um, you've got to figure out what he's doing. He may be at a, at a farm two miles over in the beans all summer and then come back, or he might not, not even be on the farm that year because of, of the crop rotation. So that's all stuff you have to start learning and figuring out. And it can, you can learn that in as quick as a conversation with somebody that can tell you that because, you know, they have a history of knowing or it's observations or, or uh, trail cameras that tell you that. But that's the kind of stuff you need to start figuring out um, is, okay, he's living there, but is he living there all the time or is he living there every other year or on certain winds or on certain crop rotations? So th- those are the thoughts in my head. And if, if I'm, let's say, you know, this perfect scenario exists of this buck is living there all summer and it's beans and you watch him doing a certain thing. And then, you know, whether it's September 15th or October 1st or whenever the opener comes in, then yeah, it, it might be, you know, again, the perfect scenario of, of go in and hang a stand based on a chink in his armor and, you know, he's coming right out here and, and I can slip in here along this creek bed or, or something. And if it's private, I'm certainly thinking about uh, pre-hanging a stand in, in the springtime or the early season. I'm prepping a spot that, you know, okay, if it's this bed, then you, you generally don't have a bunch of options. You generally have, okay, this is going to be the tree. It's either going to be this one or this one based on this scenario. And so I might pre-hang a stand or at least prep it so that all I've got to do is hang the stand or, or hang a few sticks or something. But, um, yeah, it's every, you know, the, the thing, uh, I guess I, I also pride myself in is I, I can't tell you that I, I just do any one thing. Right. Um, I always look at, the elements in the given scenario, because it's like the thing I, I, I know a lot of, for whatever reason, I've met a lot of professional fishermen in my life. And I'm friends with a lot of guys that fish professional walleye circuits and stuff. And, 
and you, I always chuckle because at the end of a tournament, they're interviewing the winner, and he says, uh, "Oh yeah, it was it was pink. You know, we were sh- we were trolling pink in 15 foot of water off of this. You know, and wham, wham, wham. You know, and they, well, if if you just told everybody else to do that, you know, then they could have slammed them too. But they knew." Um, they were able to figure it out quicker or sooner or better than anyone else on that particular weekend that that was the thing that worked. And it wasn't because they didn't know how to, um, to jig crawlers or troll crawlers or, or um, fish swim baits or, or whatever. Um, they know all the techniques. They just have an open and enough mind to take in the given conditions and then apply what they think is going to work at that time. And, and that's, the way I approach hunting is whether I need to prehang a spot in the spring or have a stand on my back and hunt something right at the minute. Um, I just try to keep an open enough mind to what I know that, you know, the deer being so different everywhere that you just have to be willing to observe what's going on and then be, be able to take advantage of it, be willing and able and have the knowledge of knowing when to take advantage of it. Yeah. That's that kind of example you laid out there um, speaks to something that I'm constantly internally debating, which is, you know, in this walleye example, the fact that he was able to figure out that specific combination, you know, more quickly than anybody else. But that probably took some trial and error. Like he had to try something, realize that wasn't exactly. correct, adjust, yeah. try something, adjust. In the deer world, we we put together a, an idea of what we think is happening based on all the different factors. We and then we we throw a dart at the wall. We we think this is the tree. This is the behavior we think he's going to do. And we're going to try this, but then you hunt it and it doesn't pan out. And the question that I'm always thinking through is this fine line that we seem to have to walk between, you know, giving our idea time versus moving to the next idea or the next, okay, no, that wasn't it. He must be doing this or this set of conditions actually must mean this. Uh, This is a very, very generic question. I realize. Um, but can you like, how, what's your mindset? How do you think through this dilemma, which is giving my idea time or this specific spot time or another sit versus, okay, I got to pivot. Like when, when do you pull the plug and say, nope, this is wrong. I got to adjust. Is it immediately? Do you never give an idea two days or a spot two days? Or is it, I, I realize this is so specific, uh, situation specific, but I guess walk me through your thoughts on this general idea. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's definitely an answer that comes with experience and everybody's going to be a little bit different. You're, you're always going to, second guess yourself a little bit, but I know I second guess myself a lot less now than I did 20 years ago. You know, I'd I'd go into a spot 20 years ago and I'd be like, what did I do wrong? Okay. Did I, did I make too much noise? Did I, was it this, was it that? And I've had enough success now where I know, um, I, I usually know, okay, well, it wasn't because of me or because of the noise I made or, or this or that, I can rule out certain things based on experience. So that leaves, you know, the deer or the weather or factors out of my control. Um, so that I have that confidence on my side now, but 
to to what extent you're always confident that you did the right thing? No, it, I mean it, that just doesn't exist. You're always you know because until you do have that success, you don't know for sure. Um, but your experience tells you okay. Um, what, and usually it relates to time of year. Okay, so I give you an example. Like last year, the 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 big one I killed in Wisconsin. That was the second time I hunted that spot in two days. It was a primary scrape scenario in this old, thick bedding area. Uh, it was an old orchard area where there were some apple trees in there that you could almost not see because there's just so much brush. Um, but I had hung a camera there a week and a half prior. I went there for a weekend and I scouted um, this new section of farm. And I found this primary scrape in there. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is just going to light up. This should light up in the next week to two weeks. And so I put a camera on it. And when I showed up a week and a half later, there were um, two different bucks I would have shot that were there in daylight, probably six days out of the previous 10 days. They were there pretty regularly at various hours of the day. And that's the intel you need to know that they're like, okay, he's not in there every day. So if I just pick this day and he doesn't show, that doesn't mean I screwed something up. It means that, you know, you should give it another try, right? But you have to be smart about how you're getting in and out of it. So in that particular scenario, I hunted last year. Um, I had a Northwest wind the first evening. I went in there midday and ironically, the one, the the other buck that would I would have shot. Um, I'm trying to think of the, yeah, 20 minutes before I went in there to check my camera, that buck came through there. It was like 12:30, 12:40 p.m. and I went wow. in there at 1 p.m. to pull my camera card, and I was back in there at oh, I don't know, like 2.30 or something. And I hung a spot. It it was so thick in there that I couldn't even see the scrape that I was hunting. I was 40 yards downwind of it. Um, I'm looking at one of the trails that was coming into it from from that wind direction. So I I hung the little .5 stand. Those are awesome and super lightweight. Mm -hmm. So I, I flipped in there and I hung that stand and I saw like, eight deer that night and one like two-year-old buck and, and, uh, several does, but not the right one. And they, they all moved on. And it, and I even had one, uh, a doe blow at me late, late at night, you know, cause she got out in the field and she got circled around, she got downwind and she snorted and ran off, but it wasn't to the extent that you're like, everything's educated. I'm out of here. Um, but I knew that that spot was still good, at least for the next couple of days because of that scrape, you know, scrape time of year. So the next morning the wind shifted and it went to Southwest. And I knew that stand, I, I, I left that stand up cause I'm like, Oh, you know, I'll just be right back in here tomorrow. But it shifted to the Southwest and I couldn't hunt that. And it was too thick to go in there and think about looking for my new spot. Um, in the, in the dark, especially say, you know what, I'm just going to go to the North side of the farm and hunt this other spot. And then about mid morning, I'll get down and I'll, I'll go prep it for the Southwest wind. And so I did, I I went and I hunted uh, the North side of the farm and 
I, I watched a buck breed a doe that morning. It was actually pretty cool, but, um, it was, it was just like a, a young three-year-old. And, um, and so about, it was about nine 30 or so I got down nine 30 or 10 and it was kind of breezy that day, which was really helpful. But I went, um, got down and I went into that spot. It was about 10 o'clock. It was breezy enough that I could cut, cut limbs and, and stuff and, and trim stuff with it. You know, just lots of trees blowing around. They could, you know, you'd have to be within 20, 30 feet of me to, to hear me. So I got a, a spot trimmed and, I left and I had to do some work at the computer and I, I had to go for a couple hours. So I got back into the spot about one o'clock. One, I think it was one thirty. I got back into the spot and I shot that buck at two thirty, maybe two twenty. Wow. It was, I haven't even sat an hour and that buck came into the apple tree next to the scrape. Um, it was a really cool scenario. Um, and then when I checked my camera later, that other buck, had been in, in that spot in the morning. Um, had I, you know, had different winds or still been able to sit at that, the, there was a buck that came in about eight thirty that morning that I, I missed because I didn't, you know, I didn't have the right wind and I didn't feel good about, um, cause you know, the winds are calmer at first light. I just didn't want to get in there and make a bunch of racket cause I figured they would be in there. So that was the experience telling me to not be, you know, I, and I've done it plenty of times where I go in in the dark and hang stands, but that was not a scenario worth doing that. Um, but yeah, your original question about when do you move on? When do you stick it out? Um, I, some of the big factors for me are my, the, again, that element of surprise is my entry and exit good enough that I feel I can get multiple sits or is it intrusive to the point where yeah, even though they didn't show, they're going to know I was in here and it's, it's too tough, you know, and e-bikes and cell cams and all that stuff, you know, play a role now in, in getting extra sits or, or picking the exact right days to do it. But, um, you know, experience is, is the best teacher. And, and that's where, you know, like that scenario I just described, um, I know I had a win because that was November 2nd. I shot that deer on and I knew I only had that day or maybe the next day before it was going to pretty much dry up. And so I was going to hunt that spot like two, maybe even three days in a row. Um, if I needed to before I did move on. And then I knew that was done. I mean, whether it was me or not, it was going to be done and it, you know, it would have to be hunted later. What about making adjustments based off observations? This is another one where a lot of folks I talk to are kind of split. There's some people that will see a buck and they're going to move immediately. The, an hour later, they'll yank down their tree stand and move to where that buck moved through or the next day or yeah. whatever. And there's some people who will say, well, I want to see a buck do something twice before I think it's a trend and I'll, I'll move on it. Um, and of course, there's also, you know, what time of year is it? Is this October 1st or November 15th? Um, what's right. your, what's your take on, on that? When will you move immediately? When will you not move? What's your thought process there? Yeah, no, good question. Um, because both of those answers can be right. Um, and, and it is those factors again. So you're sitting in that tree for hours and hours and you got nothing to do but think, right? So I'm, I'm an analytical thinker and I'm always trying to figure out, okay, if I see a deer, why did he do that? What, what was it? And I set up in a spot 
based on hopefully a, you know, an educated guess of what they're going to do. And if I see something happen, it's either usually confirming it or, or not that I was right. And so there's a scenario where, okay, I, I think they're bedded here. And yet the first deer I see is down here. And, and I'm like, oh, shit, I was wrong. Um, you know, they're bedded over there. And that's, you know, I knew it was one of the two and it's over here. You know, now I know where to, to, to move to, right? Or you know that, well, there's multiple deer in the area and I know there's probably going to be deer over here as well. So you, you don't react, you know, extreme, you know, just by one sighting. But um, if there's a, you know, so one where I might jump on is if I see a hot doe and she's, you know, passed through a certain spot or, you know, gone back and forth along, uh, you know, a spot of cover a couple, three times. And I've seen two smaller bucks do the same exact thing in a, in a, you know, on her trail. It, it depends where I'm at because I, I don't, I don't necessarily agree that, you know, the big buck's going to do the same thing that the little bucks did. Right. I may be on in thicker cover set up for that big buck, but there are scenarios like peak rut or something where you get a hot doe and she's gone through and you just know that this is where the, the big one's going to come through. Then that's a scenario where drop down and within 20 minutes you can be over there and be ready when, when that happens. Okay. That makes sense. Now the next step in playing this example out now is you yank your stand down and now you're going to go and move it to a new spot. So what I'd be really interested in hearing about is, is your thought process when you're standing in the general zone and you're trying to make the decision of which tree, like in my mind, this is like an art form trying to balance all the different factors when you're trying to pick. I mean, sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's like, there's only one tree that's going to work. But then lots of other yeah. times there's, well, I want to be within range of this spot. I think they're going to come through or these two spots. They might come through. And then I also got to think about wind. And then I also need to find a tree that you know, I can stay hidden in. Um, but very rarely do you get the perfect tree for all three of those. You have to kind of right. weigh each one and figure out what's more important in this scenario or that. Um, and maybe there's other things you're thinking about too. Uh, what's, what's your thought process in that moment? What are the what's the checklist you're going through and all the different details you're considering to pick the perfect spot within the spot? Yeah, that's, uh, that is, I mean, that's the stuff you, you run through your mind when you're standing there on the ground and you're looking around. Um, for me, the number one scenario is where do I think that buck's going to come through where, you know, and where are the alternate scenarios and where's my best chance to stay undetected and, and kill that buck, you know, um, the tree really doesn't factor into me until the very end, because I, I almost try to eliminate all the trees and try not to look at the trees until I've decided, okay, where, where do I need to be? And once you decide where you need to be, then you find the nearest tree that works. And then you start looking at the trees. So that's that's my thought process. I really don't try to look at the trees at all until I figure out, okay, well, here's the trail. This is the other trail. This is what the wind is doing. So if I had any choice in the world of where to put a tree, where would it be? And then I 
then I base my decision on that. Um, because, and, and this goes back to equipment now. I mean, whether it's the point five or guys that are saddle hunters or sticks or whatever you're using, my setup lets me get into basically almost any tree I want to, or I go back to the truck and pick my other setup that, that does let me, you know, but I, I try to make sure my equipment isn't a limiting factor and that I can get into about any setup. Some of them may require more trimming than others. And so that's a factor. And I'm like, well, gosh, man, I, I could get here, but it's quiet today. And I know that the deer are bedded close and I really can't cut the crap out of stuff, you know, so that can become a factor. <clears throat> but yeah, I mean, it's, it's usually the, the last factor. I'm, I'm figuring okay, where, where do I have to be? And then, uh, then I decide, you know, how to, how to make it happen. So, um, you know, it could be a, I was, I was, I wounded this one. This is one of the few, I pride myself in not wounding them, but about 15 years ago, I wounded a big one. <clears throat> I was in a tree. Um, I mean, it was like a six inch popple tree on the tip of a point that, but I had observed these deer going through the end of this point the previous evening. And, and there was a big one in that area. And I sat there, it was like, 15 degrees that night and I sat there in this tree not moving a muscle for like two and a half hours just you know totally sticking out but I knew it was probably going to be last light when it happened anyway so I had a, a better chance um but I I caught a deflection on a on a limb when it when I did get a shot and it, it didn't work out that time but um I just I try to not let you know I I hunt the deer, not the tree. That's what I say. You know, just don't be hunting trees when you're out in the woods, you know, hunt the deer and the sign and then figure out where you need to be. <clears throat> Andre had said something to me like, man, this is like 20 years ago. Um, about his, his example was, you know, you look at a deer, if you, if you're lucky enough to watch a mature buck on his feet for any amount of time, um, think about how many trees that deer walks by that you could have killed him from. Right. And if you had just known, right. If you had an hourglass or a crystal ball and you could say, well, you know, this buck's going to come out here and walk along here and go back over here. There's a, there's a ton of trees you could kill him from. Um, but we don't have that crystal ball. And, and so to me, it's a little bit less about the perfect tree, but it's about the, um, what gives you your best chance, you know, to, to have that scenario work out, you know, where, okay, here's, here's the wind. That's good for me. That's good for the deer. This is where I need to be. Um, and then, yeah, it might mean that I'm in a skinnier tree than I want to be, or I'm on the backside of it in a saddle, or I'm in a, uh, climber 30 feet up, or I'm, I'm just in my sticks and, lightweight stand and and uh this is usually the case you know so so it sounds like you're you're always going to prioritize the location the best location over the best cover right um yeah not necessarily always because like i guess the the exception to that too is how much time you have um how intrusive that spot is or how aggressive it is if you're like i gotta get this done and if i go in here it's a one and done situation. You know, I've, I've stunk it all up and this is it versus, um, 
a more conservative approach and you're like, you know, I might get a shot here or I might just be observing tonight, but I'm not very intrusive. So I'm going to see what's going on. So you've got those scenarios too. Okay. What about that situation? And you, you, you dropped a couple examples in there, but maybe you can expand on this in this scenario where, you know, you've got the perfect location, but it's a crap tree. It's a six inch poplar or whatever with almost no branches or something like that. What are the things you do to make that work still for you? So the, the things you, the things you do is, is you just, number one, you mentally prepare yourself for being ready. Um, you generally have, okay, if, if it's that type of scenario, you know that I can't get away with excess movement. I have to be ready. And whether that means holding your bow the whole time or having it on a hanger right in front of your face where you just minimize absolutely every movement, it might mean standing the whole time instead of sitting. Um, but it, it's something to that extent that, you know, okay, this is what I sacrificed. I'm giving up this in order to have this. And so if that's the tree and it means you're really exposed, it means you have to minimize your movement. Um, so the only way to get, get the job done is, and, and you tell yourself, okay, well, it's, it's raining. I'm not going to hear them coming or it's windy. I'm not going to hear them coming. Um, they could be right there. You, you give yourself, you know, it's like, I always call that pre-pitching your outfielders when we're in baseball, you know, you're a base runner and you've got to see where the defense is playing to know whether you can go to third on a base hit to such and such spot. You know, you get in your tree stand and I pre-pitch my, my deer, you know, I'm, I'm analyzing, okay, if he comes from here, this is what I have to do. If he comes from here, this is what I have to do. And you figure out your worst case scenario. It's like, all right, if there's one over here, how can I get my bow and get turned around and stuff? So you, you, you prepare yourself for that worst scenario and sit or stand or set up to accommodate that. And, and that's how you can close the deal on more deer. Um, but too many guys, and this is what drives me nuts. I mean, guys are ranging deer right before they shoot them. And I just don't get that. You know, we've got range finders and we've got brains to, to remember things. <laughs> yeah. You should be, you know, ranging things ahead of time and then just sit there and repeat it to yourself in the tree. You know, that's 30 yards. That's 35. That's 27. You know, normally I have three or four yardages that I keep repeating to myself. Okay. I know that one's 41. I know that one's 30. I know that's 22. And that's all you need to know, you know, cause if you can't do the math in between those, then you're struggling. So that's the kind of stuff that you mentally prepare yourself for and that you do while you're in a tree, um, to help you close the deal. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. You know, another part of this whole scenario of, 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 picking the spot and finding the tree and, and getting set up, all that kind of stuff is of course, factoring wind. You, know, you mentioned that as being <clears throat> one of the first things you need to think about, but I also know that you think about wind, not in the obvious way all the time, which is just making sure that deer won't smell me, but also thinking about how deer will use the wind and then trying to find a, an off wind angle or, or somewhere where you both kind of feel like you're in, in an advantageous position. Um, and this is, this concept is something that a lot of great deer hunters talk about. 
It's also a concept that I think a lot of new to average hunters have a hard time putting into action. It's, it's one thing to hear it. It's a harder thing to figure out how to pull it off. Um, and I've even had struggles sometimes with it in like high deer density areas where, you know, you might be able to play it on the buck, but if there's 20 does that are going to come through from every different direction in the world and they start spooking, your night's done too. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. So I'm just kind of curious if you can speak to how you think about finding those situations and, and maybe there's an example you can share to kind of illustrate how to take this idea that makes a lot of sense, but it's often a lot harder to execute on. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's, it's, um, it's just getting over that initial hump of learning what the heck people mean when they say play the wind. And there was bad information given for years about that because playing the wind does not just mean walking into the wind. Um, it, it might mean that, but, it doesn't just mean that it means, you know, hunting to the point where the deer don't detect you, you know, before you shoot them. Right. So, and using the wind to that advantage. And so you've got to not just think about what wind is good for you, but what wind is good for the deer, because if the wind is bad for the deer, they're not going to do what you want them to. And if, if, if you can think through a scenario as if you're not there, okay, if this buck is bedded where I think he is, what is he probably going to do based on this wind? Okay, and then where could I be sitting that he would still do that and not detect me? You know, and, and so when you, especially in, you know, nowadays with Onyx and, and the aerial stuff we've got access to, um, you can just literally scrub your finger or draw lines and, and, and figure it out pretty quickly. But the, the problem a lot of guys have is, is they, they say, well, okay, I, you know, I've got a, I've got a west wind tonight. That means I can, I can hunt over here and they won't smell me. Okay, but will they be there in a west wind? Yeah. And if the answer is yes, then, then you're good. But if it's not, then, then you've got to rethink your strategy. So for me, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it becomes pretty obvious, you know, when you, and you say, okay, well, uh, especially in hill country, for example, all right, we've got, let's say we've got a northwest running ridge <clears throat> and you've got a, um, or a, a north-south running ridge, I should say, and let's say you've got a west wind. So people say, well, I'm going to hunt my uh, east side of the property because that's a, you know, that's going to be downwind. Well, what happens when the deer, you know, they're bedded on the east side of that slope because, you know, they got a west wind that day. And what happens when they want to head west, you know, into the wind, out to the farm field or the food plot or whatever, it does you no good to be east of them. So that's where you look at terrain and natural um, differences with thermals um, and cover and obstacles like blowdowns and stuff. And, and your scouting will show you that is like, okay, um, how can I still sit, you know, on west of that deer with the west wind without being able, you know, him to be able to de- detect me. So it, it, you know, and it's, and it's obvious, well, yeah, you, you know, you're not going to sit directly upwind of him where he's bedded. 
maybe north or south of them, right? Well, now your scouting is, is you're asking yourself, okay, well, what's going to make them go north a little bit or south a little bit? Sometimes it's a little bit of a shift in the contour of the land, you know, where that ridge turns just a little bit before it goes out to the field. And sometimes it's a blowdown or a thicket or something that they want, they walk on the edge of that gives you that little bit of advantage. And so those are the things you're looking for. So like an example of that would be, um, Oh, I shot a big, big eight point down in Ohio in late January, a couple of years ago, or geez, it was 20 January of 2018. I shot it. And that was a spot I'd hunted two times prior to that. So you're thinking generally you don't hunt the same spot, you know, late season like that. But I was, I was getting in and out. We had snow and I was getting in and out. Um, it was lower deer density too. So I wasn't spooking them, but I, I went in, um, and scouted in the snow and I'm like, Oh my gosh, this, these deer are coming right up this ridge, um, out of this Valley and I had, what was it? I had a southwest wind, west-southwest wind that night. And so they were mostly coming into that wind with, with it mostly in their face, but not totally. And so by getting a little bit further east, just, you know, 30 yards, um, you know, had that deer. And, and it almost, it was really borderline. But that buck came out of the valley that night, like just 20, 20 minutes before dark. I see him down in the valley and he's working his way up, but he's working his way towards the east to kind of start trying to smell what's coming down the ridge from the thermals and stuff. But I, it was just off enough that he didn't go far enough east to smell me and he started coming up that ridge. And so he had the wind mostly in his face and and I had that just that crosswind enough that it was it wasn't going down to him. It was going a little bit to his right. And it was, you know, one of those perfect winds where you got about a six mile an hour wind where it's steady enough to, to not deflect and not so calm that your scent is pooling. Mm -hmm. But that's the kind of scenarios that that are, those are killing scenarios. Um, I shot the one that we had on the addictions episode years ago that in that little water puddle that I put in the hill country video. Yeah. And that was another perfect example of, uh, um, trying to think. So that was a Southwest wind and it was more of a South Southwest wind. And that buck would bed in there on anywhere from a West to South wind. And, but I was, I was far enough West of him that the, my wind was going to his North. And so he, you know, he had to, um, walk the contour of that point a little bit to swing a little bit south of me before he started going west. And, you know, by the time he got to me, I'm, uh, I'm again, uh, like my wind is quartering towards him, you know, where if he'd have kept coming and walked past that water hole, you know, he'd have, he'd have winded me. So those are the scenarios you look at too as well. Okay. He's eventually going to cross my wind, but I need to be able to kill him before he does that. And and that's what you're looking for too. So, and some, you know, they don't always smell you or they don't always bolt, you know, typically they will, you know, if, if they get any kind of whiff, but, um, 
Do you ever? That, sorry, I was going to ask. Do you do you ever get more conservative than what you're describing when you're in a high deer density area? I'm just thinking about like some of the southern Michigan places that I'm I'm assuming you hunt are kind of similar to mine, where there's so many deer. Sometimes I I find myself debating: Do I do what you're describing and play that buck perfectly, or do I? do I think about the risk of the fact that there's so many damn does that are going to be coming through here that there's no way I'll get away with it. But if I back off another 20 yards or something, I won't be perfectly on that buck, but at least I won't have 14 does that win me over the next two hours. And then if that yeah, buck absolutely. comes through, you do. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Especially if it's my home area, you know, where I know I have more sits. Um, so again, it's like oh, those hundred different criteria that you run through your mind all come into play in making that final decision of where I'm going to sit and how, how many times I'm going to sit there and when I'm going to sit there. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's certainly a factor. I, I give you an example is the, that great big seven point I killed a couple of years ago. Um, I sat a more conservative spot on that farm because Lee already had a stand uh, hung there. We already had a spot prepped and hung and it was, um, further off of the corner of the field than, than you, that you would typically sit if you were going to be aggressive, but it allows us to get in and out of there a lot easier. And especially, and this was third week in November, getting to be into the third week in November. So the foliage is down and you, you can't just be up on a ridge point, you know, cutting and, and set things up and being super noisy in, in that in that scenario, given where we, I figured they were betting. And um, so I, I sat off of it in that stand. Um, and yeah, I mean, th- those are ones where you're, you're hoping to see something. You're hoping that, um, you know, because they don't they don't always just come out to the corner of the field and then just turn around and leave. You know, they're probably going to come out and walk somewhere. So, and it's the rut, you know, that was, that was more of a later back, back part of the rut, but yeah, he came out there after a couple does came out into that field. And then, uh, he came out about 10 minutes later and he headed right over to where the does went, but then the doe ended up coming right over in front of me at last light. And then he followed her. And so that, that worked out, you know, and that's, that's why you do that because I had a, another day. I didn't, didn't have to throw all my chips in right then. Um, so yeah, it's always, it's always a factor like that. And usually I save my most aggressive moves for when I really either I'm on a time crunch and like, well, I got one day left, you know, why not? Or, um, I've, uh, um, I've got things figured out. I, I know, okay, well, I saw him do this. He went in here this morning and he betted, and this is what the wind's doing. He's, he's going to be coming out of there. One of these two places or something, you know, those are, those are scenarios where you, you get aggressive and, and make a move. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love, I love how deep you can get with this stuff and these, this, oh, this I know, chess right? match. Yeah. I, I just, I geek out over it so hard. <laughs> Um, yeah, I tend to, too. It's, uh, the analytical side of me and the, the tech side of me that just loves to study the different scenarios. You know, some guys are a lot more primitive in their 
thoughts and reactions to, to the way they pursue it and they do well. Um, and I, I like studying it. Um, it's like I said, it's that chess game or that puzzle puzzle you're trying to put together. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. Um, well, I, I, I feel like there's a million things more we could get into, but I, I don't want to take your entire day, so we should probably wrap it up. Um, one last yeah. kind of question slash thought. I know that you've spent a lot of time over recent years, you know, balancing your own hunting time with a family and taking your son out hunting and, and also still trying to spend some time yourself. It's something that I'm starting to deal with. I've got a three-year-old and a one-year-old, so that's constantly more and more on my mind. I'm just kind of curious what your, what your advice might be for folks that, and there's many, many other folks in similar situations to this with children, with families, trying to balance our obsession with whitetails and all this while also trying to meet all of our other obligations. Um, any thoughts on, on how you've been able to manage that and, or how you've been able to become more efficient with your hunting to still reach your goals, have a good time, but, but have, you know, time for everything else too. Yeah, it's a good question, Mark. I'm glad you bring that up because first of all, I would say, um, make sure you prioritize your family. You know, they're the most important thing in your life. They should be. And, and without them, you have nothing, you know, you can have all the deer heads on the, on the wall in the world. And I, I just think you have nothing if you don't have your loved ones around you and a family that loves you and supports you and, and, so that needs to be priority one. I mean, I I don't think um, well, that's a that's a long rabbit hole to get down. But you know, people lose friendships and marriages over deer, and it's just not worth it. Yeah. Um, so I, I really think people need to prioritize their their family. For me, that I mean, the good scenario um, I attribute success to is is uh, yeah. There's there's a learning curve to doing this stuff, and you need that experience. Some guys get into hunting um, later in life and they don't have, you know, their childhood of uh, just exploring in the woods to draw back on me. I mean, I was in the woods with BB guns and bow and arrows and stuff since I was four. And I have a lifetime of experiences in the woods to draw on. And I, I do think, you know, when you're young enough that you don't have a family and it, if it is eating you up and you want to do it all the time, then do it. Um, that's a great time of your life in your teens and twenties to, uh, to figure things out and to learn. And if it's you know, not something you want to keep doing, that's fine. But if, if you do love it, you're going to gain a lot of experience and, and memories um, to draw back on when you're older and you don't have as much time like me. And so nowadays I can, I can be confident that um, I can sit in my, at my computer and or at my kids' soccer games and be just, monitoring the weather. Um, maybe I'm monitoring trail cameras or, um, talking to people, but I'm watching weather forecasts and I know, and, and this is a big reason I'm self-employed because I, I wanted that flexibility in my life to be able to do that. Um, so if I hunt less, it's going to be quality hunts. Um, but you can be doing other things and still, have that in the back of your mind. Cause I mean, my wife will tell you, I always have deer on my phone. I'm doing something related to deer and, um, figuring out what my next move is. And so I think last year I, I never, 
I never picked up a bow in Michigan. I, I just took my son out if I took anybody out. Um, but I still keep tabs on things and, uh, I try to, I run cameras and I, I go watch certain spots or I walk, you know, certain spots. And if something appeals to me or something you know catches my eye, then, then I, I can shift gears really quickly. Um, but you know, my, my mode these days tends to be saving my, my hunting time for my kids locally. And then I save some, you know, my quality hunts for myself. Um, in Wisconsin or, or somewhere else, you know, typically I'll do other hunts. Like last year I drew some good tags and I killed a big elk and a nice mule deer. And, um, so I, I enjoy the other stuff too, but, um, yeah, I, I think that balance comes from experience of, of having really been into it when I was younger and I can draw on that. And I'm, I'm a lot more comfortable not having to, to grind it out every day, all day, every day type of thing. So, um, you start to see the, um, the sense in, in not making certain moves anymore and just saving your, you know, saving your, um, the quality time for, for when we really need it to, to happen. Yeah. Yeah. That uh, that makes a lot of sense, Jared. And uh, this has been great. I've really I've really enjoyed it. I, I knew I would, and uh, you haven't let me down. Uh, I appreciate that. For for people that want more of 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 this kind of insight, uh, do you want to tell folks where they can watch your your Whitetail Addictions episodes or buy your DVDs? Anything else like that? Yeah. Um, so Lee and I still run Next Buck Outdoors, which is what we um, changed blood brothers outdoors two years ago. And, um, I, I honestly don't do a lot actively on social media and stuff. Um, it's just, it's, there's just not time in my life to, to do a lot of that. I don't, I don't really have plans imminently of making other videos other than I'll still contribute to the addiction stuff that I, that I like to do, be a part of with Andre and them. Um, but next buck outdoors is where you can get any of my videos like that. And, and just drop me a line if you have questions or, or want some insight on something, I'm happy to help guys. Um, but yeah, that's, you know, that's, uh, that's a, a means of getting a hold of me there. So. Perfect. All right. Well, uh, I highly recommend those, those videos have, uh, been super helpful to me and many other people so for anyone listening if you haven't picked up those dvds yet you should even if it means you need to buy a dvd player because a lot of people don't have those anymore i know they right yeah buy a 30 dollar dvd player <laughs> convert them to online only and i just haven't had time but um i bet if you ever had the time jared those things a, a, a virtual pass to those would sell like hotcakes they really would yeah, maybe, maybe so. We'll uh, we'll have to come back on and plug that if I if I convert those. Then, <laughs> yep. You ever, if you ever do, let me know. I'd happily happily spread the word. Cool. All right, Jerry. Well, thank you. Uh, this has been a lot of fun, and uh, hope we can do it again. Yeah. Thanks, Mark. All right, and that's it. Thank you for listening. I'll uh, plug once again the new Wired Hunt website where you can find all our new podcasts, all the new articles from our team and our new video series, go to themeateater.com slash wired. Check it out there. Lots to read, lots to watch, lots to listen to. 
deer season is going to be here before you know it. So uh, make sure you're prepping those stands, shooting that bow, learning everything you can, and getting ready because opening day is just around the corner. So thank you, and stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.